Hello and welcome to Euractiv's Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's Agri-Food News Team. So welcome back, dear listeners. Uh, second episode of 2021 and I have to say things are moving not that slowly in the EU bubble. Uh, we had quite an interesting week in the EU agri-food world. Uh, on Tuesday, there was this big event organized by the Commission to kick off the revision of the EU's Directive on Sustainable Use of Pesticides. So the Commission announced that they want to finish uh, these uh, both the evaluation and the impact assessment by the end of the year. It was already announced, actually. And then the idea is to unveil the, the new legislative proposal in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, there's still time, but since it's one of the most important portion of the uh, farm to fork strategy, so the part of the Green Deal that actually deals with the food systems. So again, it's good to keep pace with the developments on the topic. And, and also this week, the, the, the consultation on the matter has been started and it will be closed in uh, April the 12th. There were also some technical meetings uh, for uh, the Common Agricultural Policy, so the EU's uh, Farming Subsidies Programme. Uh, of course, uh, we are in the, in the, as you probably already know, we are in the, at the trilogue stage. So uh, the two uh, lawmakers, the European Parliament and the European Council, uh, are uh, negotiating uh, in order to reach a common position. Um, we, we actually attended a very interesting press conference uh, with the two negotiators uh, on the parliament side, uh, Peter Jaar and uh, Ulrike Müller. So uh, the first thing that, that I'd like to highlight is, is on timing, on the timing. They basically say that if they continue to have one trilogue per month, uh, as, as they had so far, they believe that in April or May, they could find a final agreement uh, with mm. the council. So even... Uh, it's even pretty interesting. It's interesting. And even the, the, the current Portuguese presidency have the same objective. They want to close mm. the gap by spring. I mean, these are the expectations. Eh? So mm -hmm. when it comes to reality, uh, they... They also say that they're still talking about how financing the cap, so the, the way to, to distribute the money, and uh, and also the structure of governance. Plus, there's still the the thorny issue of the architecture, so how to deliver the greening of the European agriculture through um, the Common Agricultural Policy Program. Yeah, there's definitely a number of outstanding issues. Yeah, I mean... What I could understand is that it's not about the number of trilogues uh, because uh, the trilogues are, of course, the negotiations between the lawmakers uh, because there are also technical meetings in which they could exchange views and uh, and there's no limit to the technical meeting that they could have. Uh, it's basically um, finding a common ground. I, I wouldn't focus that much on how many trilogues are needed to reach an agreement but and this is an advice for who's checking the uh, the developments uh, of of the talks. I would check on 
how many outstanding issues are settled and and how fast. So for instance, I think that the green architecture could take a bit longer because the of because of the public opinion pressure, but also because positions are still far. And when you can feel positive progress in uh, in these outstanding issues like the green architectures, it means that we are closer uh, to the end. So you have to follow religiously our updates on uh, on uh, your active website from now Very on. <laughs> Top tip to the listeners is follow your <laughs> Of course. I mean, it's the only way to stay up to date. It's, it's useless <laughs> if you now circle on your, on your calendar the Agrifish Council of May just because Ulrike Müller or, or the Portuguese minister expect a deal before summer. Eh? So... You heard it here first, folks. Follow your active, listen to the podcast. <laughs> Top tips. But another interesting issue is uh, is purely technical. Some of you have probably seen uh, a tweet that I published on Thursday on this. You should probably give the warning that you gave on Twitter as well. Yeah. And Which was? Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, it's, uh, it's basically very nerd stuff, <laughs> EU nerd stuff. Top level nerd. Yeah, EU top nerd level. Stuff. I mean, those who have had some experience in the trilogue negotiations, so a, a bunch of people, uh, already knows that there's uh, there's this document, no? The, the four column. It, it is fondly called four column because it's it's a table with four columns, of Whoa. course. <laughs> wow, mind-blowing. And all the negotiating positions of the, negoci- of the negotiators are there. So you have in the first column the the commission's proposal, uh, in the second column the way the parliament amended the proposal, so the the parliament's mandate, and on the third column um, the the council general approach, and on the last column, the fourth column, uh, you have the attempts by the rotating presidency to reach a, a compromise. So basically suggestions from the presidency. So it, it turned out that. For these negotiations on, on CAP, on the reform of CAP, there's an additional column. Peter Yar spoke about, uh, Peter Yar is one of the negotiators uh, for, uh, on the parliament side. Uh, he said that there's a five-column document, which is, again, for people who have worked in the institutions, it's like a unicorn. It's like a, a shamrock, no? It's something, you know, uh, unusual at least. <laughs> Up there with unicorns and shamrocks, <laughs> In the, in the, the EU shamrock. Quite an accolade. <laughs> and, and why this? Because the Commission also listed some suggestions to interpret the original proposal in the light of the farm to fork strategy, so the, the used food policy, uh, the part of the Green Deal, no? Which is fair. I mean, things are, have radically changed uh, since the presentation of the CAP proposal in, in uh, 2018. Because of course, Green Deal was unveiled, and in the meantime, uh, I mean, we're talking we're talking about a huge revolution, but it's a bit controversial at the same time because we're talking about suggestions that the Commission uh, is proposing at the table. I mean, Commission has always had a strong influence on the process, on the in the talks between uh, the Council and the Parliament. This way, it is like kind of amending their own proposal. So it put the commission ideally on the same footing of the co-legislators and the lawmakers in the EU system are the parliament and the council. The commission 
has a different role, which is basically the initiative, the, the power of initiative. Indeed, I asked about this interference uh, and one of the European Parliament negotiators, uh, the, the German Peter Jahr, said that it is unusual, but honest. Honest because, uh, again, we're facing these new conditions, new requirements. But he also said that it's a bit annoying. So he said, what makes me angry is that the commission don't think we are able to deal with it. So, I mean, he said, we are part of the society as well. We know what's happening. So the commission doesn't need to recall uh, how important are are to uh, match uh, um, the cap with the, with the farm to four goals, with the Green Deal objective. You found it a bit condescending or something. Or, I mean. or I'd say it's like, you know, patronizing, no? Yeah. Um, okay. Again, it's it's understandable because we're talking about uh, the top priority of the commission, of mm. this commission at least. Uh, top priority in the in the von der Leyen uh, mandate. So uh, again, understandable, but controversial. A little bit controversial. I mean, controversial in, in the good terms. I mean, not saying that uh, it, it's uh, you know it's unlawful uh, because uh, again, the commission it's 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 basically the main task of the commission to provide some kind of expertise because they they have technical experts, they have lawyers, they have experts in in EU law. Mm-hmm. So in one way or another, they have an influence on the process, even even if they're not part. But this is. A different layer of influence. I mean, it's like again, as I said, being on the on the same um, negotiating table in the sense that they can also amend their own proposal. Depends um, on the very difficult um, timing, let's say, of the cap proposal, which was presented before the end of the of the past uh, mandate, commission's mandate. So and and again in the meantime there was the farm to fork so it's it's understandable but a bit controversial. And something else, an interesting development that happened this week um, happened in the Czech Republic, where uh, the country's on its way to introduce a pretty controversial um, protectionist food law, um, even though there are warnings this could be in violation of the EU's um, free movement of goods. And so this is kind of interesting because I remember back at the beginning of, um, well, when kind of everything went a bit crazy last year and the start of the first lockdown, there were um, all these warnings about kind of member states turning to protectionist measures, especially in the agri-food sector. Um, and, you know, promoting national agri-food products, discouraging imported products. And at the time, the European Commission uh, expressed concern about this and about the free movement of goods and services in the internal market, saying that the internal market is our strongest asset in ensuring supplies across the EU um, and basically warned against this kind of shift towards protectionism in the agri-food sector. Um, but now this week, the lower house of the Czech parliament actually passed an amendment um, to the food law uh, under which basically it would oblige stores, uh, large stores, stores that are larger than 400 square meters, um, to sell a minimum share of food products made in the Czech Republic. And, and that quota would be around 55% next year. But the aim is to actually grow that up to 73% in 2028. So it's pretty, um, pretty considerable. And before the vote, 
The Agricultural Minister, uh, Miroslav Toman, he actually called on MPs to be a little bit nationalistic um, when it comes to Czech food stuff, which is a pretty interesting um, statement. And so in reaction to the news, well, the European Commission, um, they, they said they were reluctant to comment on something as it hasn't actually passed into law yet. It's just the early stages of it. Um, they were reluctant to kind of comment on speculation. But they again reiterated the importance of free movement of goods and services in the internal market, um, saying it was the, our best tool, the EU's best tool for uh, ensuring a recovery for all after COVID. Um, they also said that local restrictions of whether, whatever kind are counterproductive um, and that it's the utmost importance uh, that national emergency measures are not at the expense of the fundamental principles and values set out in the treaties. Um, but although they they didn't want to speculate at this stage, um, another EU source um, told us that um, if adopted, these measures would clearly create privileged marketing conditions for Czech food products. So discriminating against other EU food producers and going against the free movement of goods principle. So there was a pretty mixed reaction in the Czech Republic um, about this. So we had the Czech Prime Minister, Andrew Babish, um, who said that um, he did not initiate the proposal and actually does not support it. Um, he called it a useless political gesture. But there was also some support for, for the amendment. And so this will be definitely something to watch in the coming weeks and months at how this develops. This week, our guest on the podcast is uh, Green MEP Eleonora Evie, and we spoke to her a bit about her views on gene editing and the news that the European Parliament passed the 51st um, objection to the authorisation of GM crops in December. And here's what she had to say on the matter. So we are here today with uh, Eleonora Evie, who's an Italian MEP for the Greens. Thanks for joining us, Eleonora. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. So you actually joined the Greens quite recently in December, if I'm not wrong. So just uh, you know, to break the ice, how these first weeks in the new group have been? Well, simply wonderful and fantastic, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, very happy to have joined the Green EFA group. And it's so good that... Um, Inside the group, uh, we work in a very good cooperative way. It's very transparent and uh, um, and very welcoming. So it's a really a nice feeling being there. I'm glad to hear that you're settling in well. Um, and so we invited you here today to talk about a number of things. And um, one of them was a development that happened um, back in December. So in December, the EU Parliament voted through uh, its 51st objection um, to GM crop authorizations, uh, giving a pretty kind of clear signal from the Parliament about where it stands on this technology. But I, I, wondered, I wanted to hear from you a little bit about how you think the Parliament's position compares with that of the Commission's um, and how you th- whether you think kind of this... this is being taken into account by the commission it is a, a, a long story this one of objecting uh, gmo's authorization uh, by the parliament uh, because the european commission its ears that it's continues to um, authorize new gmos uh, 
or reauthorize uh, GMOs on the EU market, uh, despite the op- opposition by the European Parliament. And this is very bad, and uh, it poses a number of questions, uh, not only uh, in regards to the uh, number of uh, um, reasons that the Parliament uh, uh, underlines in uh, each and every uh, resolution, but also it poses a, a question of democracy in the end, if it is um, acceptable that the European Commission, even though the legal framework uh, that uh, it's always uh, claimed uh, uh, to be followed by um, by uh, the European Commission itself, um, it is correct and acceptable to continue to authorize such GMOs uh, in Europe. And this is... Uh, something that has to be uh, dealt with uh, um, uh, with attention and something that sometimes uh, even not is um, uh, it, um, it is not um, is not very much uh, in the interest of people or at least doesn't really reach out people and citizens that have shown it many times uh, that a lot of eurobarometers on that uh, saying that uh, european citizens are against uh, GMOs uh, in Europe. So uh, it is important uh, that uh, the European Commission really changes its uh, behavior and start listening not only the Parliament but European citizens on these uh, GMOs. Uh, um, you spoke a bit about the kind of past, um, you know, authorizations from the Commission um, of this kind of of this biotechnology, um, and the Commission says that it's it's looking to press ahead with something they call a new approach to GM crops. Um, what is your take on that? That's a wonderful signal. Uh, until I I won't see. Uh, written on paper <laughs> I won't believe it <laughs> uh, but it's so important now that uh, we will um, start making uh, consideration on sustainability so on the effects that GMOs uh, crops have on the environment, uh, for example, when we talk about uh, um, third countries where the majority of GMOs um, plants and crops comes from, uh, they are main driver of deforestation, where we as Europeans for our um, behaviors and our consumes uh, are responsible of uh, 10% of deforestation globally, then it poses really a question of, is it sustainable? Uh, shouldn't we uh, stop destruction of nature across the globe and start uh, um, uh, stopping these uh, uh, import of GMOs crop and change the way we may we do our agriculture? So this is um, an important signal by the European Commission uh, that comes uh, uh, after these many years of uh, objections by the European Parliament, where an increasing number of MEPs uh, have started to oppose, so to vote in favour of these objections. And this is uh, another important signal I would uh, also uh, underline. And another aspect which is um, uh, important as well, which is uh, the increased number of member states no more supporting this uh, uh, authorization of uh, GMOs in Europe. So really, the European Commission is... Uh, working on on its own and this is something that has to be changed 
And you also mentioned this uh, um, uh, revision, let's say, of the broader EU policy when it comes to trade. And there's uh, this rethinking of the EU trade policy to take into account, as you said, uh, the new commitment to, to, for instance, sustainable food system when it comes to agriculture. So uh, what could be the contribution from the European Parliament side on uh, bettering the, the EU trade policy? This is a huge uh, area of work, uh, and um, luckily from the European Parliament, uh, positive signals uh, are coming, uh, in particular on uh, um, legislative uh, initiative. Uh, uh, there has been this INL uh, report on deforestation and establishing a legal framework to halt deforestation uh, across the globe and in particular uh, uh, having products imported uh, in the EU that are not causing this deforestation um, elsewhere. And this is something very important as um, as we said and as we have seen also in the uh, European Green Deal and in the, uh, in the Farm to Fork, in the biodiversity strategy, uh, these are uh, the, um, exactly uh, the uh, major uh, areas of intervention where uh, European Union has to take a strong stance, where, uh, by the way, citizens are more and more aware of these um, impacts and the, the consequences of uh, their own behavior and, con and consumptions. So um, I uh, expect uh, um, not only from the parliament that has already made some strong stances on this, I expect now from the European Commission um, uh, legislative proposal to regulate this and to make sure that each and every product that comes and are imported in uh, in Europe are not causing deforestation around the globe. Moving to uh, the topic of uh, um, the new brand building techniques that uh, the Greens Group uh, called new GMOs. In Italy, you're coming from Italy, there's a particular situation because um, at the EU level, we are still at in a very uncertain, let's say, uncertain moment because uh, everything has stopped at the EU uh, Court of Justice, Justice ruling uh, that uh, equates uh, the new plantability technique or uh, gene editing to basically the legislation on GM. There's something moving in in Italy, for instance, in the uh, in the uh, agriculture committees of both uh, uh, the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate. Uh, they're trying to introduce the production and marketing of uh, varieties obtained by uh, genetic recombination. Uh, could you tell us a bit more on this? Indeed, uh, um, despite Italy has been one of those countries always opposing uh, GMOs, uh, strongly opposing GMOs, um, where no cultivation, for example, um, are present uh, in uh, in Italy, uh, but also opposing uh, uh, the uh, authorization of uh, uh, new GMOs. 
there ha- th- now something is unfortunately changing and these new breeding techniques uh, so these new gmos that have been as you said um defined by the uh, european court of justice to be regulated under the same regulatory framework that today is in place for regular gmos and this should be the line to follow so uh, the way to proceed um despite this uh, there has been attempt to uh, open doors to these new techniques in the past uh, weeks uh, luckily um uh, a new uh, vote uh, um, recently uh, performed uh, in the uh, chamber uh, of the deputies chamber uh, have now make made a stop on this attempt so we might see uh, for i hope uh, a stop on this attempt to opening doors to these new uh, genome editing techniques where uh, I have to say it's really um, important that we follow uh, what the um, European Court of Justice sentence uh, um, declared as uh, this should really be the way forward and the way to um, uh, to continue regulating GMOs. And there will be, not only in Italy, but also at the European level, many attempts to uh, reverse this uh, uh, sentence uh, and to, to, to push the European Commission, which, is, which has been asked by uh, the Council, so the member states, to um, provide a study on, uh, on these new breeding techniques and these new GMOs, uh, which is foreseen to be released uh, in the next uh, um, spring. I really hope uh, that uh, uh, the Parliament will stay strong and defend the sentence of the European Court of Justice, but I expect uh, uh, strong fights on the farm-to-fork dossier, for example, which is about to come um, in the NB committee uh, to be uh, voted. So we will see, and I really hope that uh, we don't have to, and I don't want to say that no innovation uh, has to be um, envisaged in the, in the agricultural sector. Or, right, the contrary. Of course, there are innovative practices that can be envisage it, but if we are talking about genome editing and if we are talking about uh, behaving like God, <laughs> this is really not the case. This is really not the way we should follow. And actually, the top news of the week uh, was the inauguration of the Joe Biden administration in the U.S., which has some kind of, let's say, agri-food flavor. Why, Natasha? Well, there's been this kind of long-standing issue um, between the U.S. and the EU to do with um, tariffs. Uh, that have really affected agricultural products and basically for a bit of background. Um, this came after the World Trade Organization, the WTO, um, gave the US the green light um, to, to levy tariffs on EU exports in retaliation for some earlier, um, what they considered excessive EU um, subsidies given to the aircraft maker. So in October 2019, the US imposed these retaliatory duties that affect EU exports worth 75 
billion dollars and the thing is that a lot of these tariffs were levied on uh, agricultural products such as French wine, Italian cheese, Spanish olive oil so obviously this has had a huge impact on the agri-food sector. And there's a the story continues. Um, the EU then um, retaliated against the retaliation by raising tariffs against the US, and then the US decided just before the end of 2020 to impose additional tariffs on EU agri-food products, um, targeting mainly French and German non-sparkling wines and spirits. So this is this long story of you know retaliation for, for various things that all started with this. Um, this issue over Airbus and, and Boeing in this aeronautical area that wasn't really to do with agri-food. And of course, in Brussels, they're thinking of a new beginning. Now there's a new president, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So we're kind of seizing on this momentum. Um, Norbert Linz, who's the chair of the European Parliament's Agricultural Committee, uh, sent a letter this week to the EU's Executive Vice President, Valdis uh, Dombrovskis, uh, basically calling on the European Commission to intervene um, in this dispute and uh, and the sanctions stemming from it, saying that they're causing severe damage to numerous European agricultural sectors expressing their concern and basically, you know, asking to kind of seize this moment, this opportunity um, that has opened up um, with the incoming Biden administration and to try and de-escalate um, the tensions. And he said that this is crucial to establish a truce as soon as possible um, because not doing this would further jeopardize our agricultural producers and traders. And it's actually not the first time that the European Parliament is is trying to you know, entering this uh, and trying to settle this dispute uh, their own way. For instance, there was, uh, um, they voted in favor of a smaller trade deal between the EU and uh, the US, again, as a, as a olive branch, let's say. Mm-hmm. So there was this lobster deal. So basically, um, they um, the EU decided to remove tariffs on US lobsters. So long and thanks for all the <laughs> part the the reference. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it was a, a welcome gift uh, to to Joe Biden, also because the U.S. lobster sector uh, is still suffering from the Chinese tariffs. You know, we are in the middle of a, a huge trade war at the global stage. So, um, and at the same time, they, they're suffering the effects of the CETA, the, the Canada-EU trade deal that are making the Canadian lobster more convenient for Europeans. So, again, um, you know, the, the, there's, there's some work to be done in order to bettering the situation, the, the transatlantic relationship after four long years. Uh, as uh, as von der Leyen, it's a, a long tail. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what President von der Leyen tweeted. So basically, we had four long years, um, and uh, and we, we we're now trying to to restart restart the, the transatlantic relationships um, mm. with this again first olive branches that that uh, are coming from the European Parliament. And lastly, Gerardo. What does Ajiz say when he looks in the mirror? <laughs> this is like the the whole week that, that she's saying, "Ah, let's do it. let's do the halloumi joke uh, on the podcast." Gerardo, you just ruined the joke. But everyone knows uh, knows this joke, so 
I know, and it doesn't but it doesn't get any less funny. No, I don't know. What does he say? No, you've ruined it. It's gone now. The moment's gone. Hello me. I want he says, Hello me. We're talking about Hello me this week. Why? Why are we talking e- about the law? Because the European Court of Justice has dismissed the claim of a um, Cypriot producers organization who basically challenged the trademark validation of a, of a Bulgarian halloumi sounding products who argued that they could deceive consumers. Indeed, the, the, there's this Bulgarian company uh, that basically filed this application uh, for registration of design BBQ Lumi. It sounds like a Lumi. Uh, but I mean, it involves not only the dairy products, again, alumi-like products, but also meat extracts, uh, cheese-flavored products, uh, and also the catering services. So it's it's like a brand, no? For many products. Um, so the association of producers that owns the EU collective trademark Alumi opposed the registration and brought the uh, European Union Intellectual Property Office before the EU court, saying that, uh, as Natasha said before, uh, BBQ Lumi would sound like the the Alumi cheese, no? But it's, it's not like this for the uh, European Court of Justice because they say that there is no likelihood of confusion for the le- relevant public between the collective mark Alumi that indicates uh, only the product, um, the, the Alumi cheese, and it, it is reserved for the members of this association. And design uh, BBQ Lumi, uh, which again serves to designate the entire line of products of the Bulgarian company. Uh, it's interesting um, because at the same time, um, it says a lot on the different level of protection that. The, the simple EU trademark grant to product. I mean, we're talking about the EU trademark is a great tool when it comes to intellectual property, but there's something missing in this, uh, in this story, and is the, uh, the so-called PDO, so the Protected Designation of Origin, which is quality scheme given by the commission to certain products that are closely linked to a certain region of Europe. For instance, uh, Parmaham uh, got the PDO, and it means that only the products um, produced in that particular uh, part of uh, Italy could be labeled as Parmaham. So we asked the commission if the PDO grants, you know, a higher level of protection rather than EU trademark. Actually, the the answer is yes, of course. Uh, why we ask this? Because, you know, the in in July twenty fourteen, so six years ago, Cyprus already applied to secure the PDO status for the Alumi cheese, but the process has been stalled since then. Due to, it's funny to say that, but it's geopolitical implications because uh, when they sent the application, they also included the term Helim. Sorry for our Turkish uh, listeners. So the Turkish name for Alumi, thereby covering the the whole island, uh, the production in the whole island. While the Turkish uh, Cypriot community is calling for a separate production control mechanism 
uh, again controlled by the the Turkish Chamber of Commerce. Uh, so again, the case is super complicated because the alumicis is basically lack of the the highest protection, which is the PDO, the product designation of origin. Again, it's it's another, you know, the, the EU court is stealing another blow, let's say, to Cyprus. But the main issue, the original scene, let's say, of this the, this entire uh, trademark rift is the lack of uh, recognition of alumicis, among other products that have um, the protection uh, by the EU. Majorik also lacks recognition, I would say. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I, I'd say rightful. <laughs> it, it, it was... Uh, Yes. And low oh. me. Oh. No, it's, oh, it's actually yours. You said my joke was bad. Yeah. <laughs> this week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euractis AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foot, with the technical support of Evi Chiorri. This podcast is also available on all major podcast streaming platforms. That includes Amazon, Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. I'm Natasha Foote. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This podcast is part of Euractiv's project Beyond Agriculture, funded by the IMCAP program of the European Union. The content of this podcast represents the views of the author only and is his, her, sole responsibility The European Commission does not accept any responsibility for use that may be made of the information it contains.